Hello, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the 17th episode of the Ask Abhijit Show of the Indian Interest Podcast. The Ask Abhijit Show is tomorrow. So welcome to the 17th episode of Indian Interest. And today we're going to discuss uh, important uh, issues in geopolitics. But before we do that, as always, let me take a look at who all is there with us. I can see Aditya, Ayush, Abhinav, Manav, Vladimir, Biden, Shashwat, Lucky Man, Abhishek, Mazar, Prasad, the Dragon Emperor, Animesh, Vladimir Zelensky, <laughs> Melvin, Abhishek, Ameya, Simili Me, Prasad, Tuti Futi, Aditya, Ayush, Abhinav, Manav, Pratham, T Dash, Nandan, XP1101, Akshay, Pranay, our Queen. Kostub <laughs> uh, Jaiswal, Vaishnav, Zhong, Zina, Aradhya, Avyansh, and Mummy Papa, Bhavna, Vladimir, Stalin, Sri Ram, Kirtana, Ansh, Melvin, Mahendra, SJ, Priyanshu, Aryan, Lucky, Karsh, Ayush, Joseph Stalin, Debosman, Lucky Man, Daniel Nicholson, uh, Zeros M23, Shiv Vidrohi, Lord Z Roger, Dhruv Manlik, Thunder, Feminist Slayer, Exasperated Farago, Pamel Nandi, Mahendra, Durga, Abhishek Gowda, and lots and lots of people. Welcome all to the Indian Interest Podcast. So what are the things that we shall talk about today is the question, right? So let us first begin with uh, the Indian rupee. Uh, and Sri Lanka. So as we all know, uh, let's put that on the screen. What is the news that we need to put on the screen? Give me a second. Let us bring it onto the screen. Here we are. So this is the news that has come out um, recently. Uh, it says that Sri Lanka is uh, planning to use Indian rupees for international trade. And uh, this news report is from newsfirst.lk. It's a it's a Sri Lankan website or or media pub, media house publishing company. So according to foreign media, reports have emerged saying that banks from India's neighboring island nation Sri Lanka have opened special rupee trading accounts called Vastro accounts. This comes uh, days after the Central Bank of Sri Lanka said it was awaiting the Reserve Bank of India's approval to designate Indian rupee as a foreign currency in Sri Lanka. Uh, it means that Sri Lankan citizens can now hold $10,000 in the form of Indian rupees in physical form. It also means that Indians and Sri Lankans can use Indian rupees instead of US dollars for international relations uh, transactions with each other. The Indian government uh, since July this year has been uh, looking to bring countries that are short of dollars into its rupee settlement mechanism. Uh, the reason behind this is that designating INR as a legal, legal currency in Sri Lanka will provide the country with much needed liquidity support to help it tide over its economic crisis amid inadequate availability of the US dollar. So that is what we hear. And if you want to understand what, what a Vostro account is, so a Vostro account is, is, a, is an account that a correspondent bank holds on behalf of another bank. Um, so uh, 
was to accounts enable domestic banks to provide international banking services to their clients who have global banking needs this includes wire transfers performing foreign exchange translations uh, transactions and various other things so that's what a vostro account is so once again uh, more news about this mauritius also now we hear is being included in, included in this uh, the RBI has uh, notified in July about a new, new mechanism for settling international trade in the rupee. So as many as 17 Vostro accounts have been opened thus far to facilitate uh, rupee trade with not just Russia, but also Sri Lanka and Mauritius. Uh, so banks from Mauritius and Sri Lanka have already opened these Vostro accounts with the SBI, State Bank of India. That is fantastic. Uh, 10, about 30 to 35 countries, including those from Asia, Scandinavia, and Africa, have expressed in interest in better understanding the proposed rupee trade mechanism for possible adoption. So the number of Vostro accounts is expected to rise in the near future. So we have nations like <clears throat> uh, nations that are keen on rupee trade include neighbors like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, Myanmar, and Mauritius. Um, but we also hear about other nations like Mauritius and even nations like Tajikistan and Cuba and Luxembourg and Sudan in, in East Africa. So it's drawing interest from more nations. Yes, Tajikistan, Cuba, Luxembourg, Sweden, uh, Sudan. It's already being, uh, being used by Russia following the imposition of sanctions on Moscow after the Ukraine war. Yes. So that's something that is very interesting. So this is... Uh, so India is continuing to discuss denomination of trade in rupees with various trading partners like Saudi Arabia, oil suppliers like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Yes, rupee real trade mechanism with, with uh, Saudi Arabia. That's The talks are continuing on that. That's very interesting. Uh, more about this in this uh, news report on Vion. So it will be great for Sri Lanka if they can uh, trade, uh, they can use the Indian rupee as a foreign currency. Yeah. So um, that's the deal. So uh, apart from this, apart from this, there are uh, nations like France and Singapore and uh, Nepal, Bhutan, UAE, etc. that have uh, accepted India's unified payment interface, UPI. So these nations have already adopted and they are agreed or partnered with the Indian UPI system. So you can go to these nations and, uh, you know, pay via your phone using the Indian UPI interface. And we hear that there are various nations in Europe that are also uh, thinking about adopting the Indian UPI interface because it is incredibly uh, convenient, very useful, very very user-friendly, much easier to use than a credit card, for instance, or, or any other form of payment, you know. So the UPI is uh, slowly gaining adoption in a wide number of nations, which is also great for India. It's also great for the Indian rupee. Yeah. So that is, these are the things that are happening right now. So we are... We are witnessing the slow, gradual rise of the rupee. And people are talking about de-dollarization. So, for instance, we have uh, this gentleman called Kim.com, who is a German-Finnish entrepreneur, internet entrepreneur. Yep. So, he says that BRICS Plus is taking over and there is nothing the West can do about it. The US dollar won't be the world's reserve currency and the US government won't be able to print money on the backs of other nations. US government bonds will be junk because of insane US debt. The end. That's what uh, Kim.com is saying. I think it's a little early to 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 uh, eulogize the and, and and to herald the demise of the US dollar. It's a little early to say that, 
but yes the world seems to be moving in a certain direction that could uh, that could make uh, the us dollar less valuable the world seems to want to move to other forms of payment to other currencies and one of the possibilities is a brics plus currency yes of course brics has problems of its own china is the biggest issue within brics the the major economy the largest economy and the largest trouble maker as well it has uh, territorial disputes and in problems with all its neighbors so in a scenario like that it's difficult for brics to become a viable block a viable coalition that uh, that will do well yeah but yeah if it if it actually does work it will be it will be a big challenge and a big alternative to the us dollar so it's too early to say that brics plus is taking over but yes there are moves that are happening in that direction yes so uh so yeah that is what's happening so we are witnessing maybe the beginning of a move away from the us dollar the indian rupee on its own is attracting a lot of interest from various nations mainly nations in india's periphery greater india nations you know sri lanka nepal bhutan bangladesh uh, myanmar and so on uh, and also mauritius tajikistan cuba luxembourg uh, sudan eastern african nations and as more na- more nations start adopting this even more will be interested and the upi is being is being adopted in various parts of the world even singapore which is a first world nation and so on so yeah these are these are good signs for the indian economy for in the indian upi unified payments interface and and for the indian rupee as well uh, let's see what happens with vis-a-vis brics whether brics can come up with its own currency which will be based on a basket of commodities like or like like gold like uranium like graphite and various other things yeah if that happens then then it will strengthen the currencies which are part of it as well so that's where we are now we are talking about sri lanka so let me uh, bring this this uh, let's talk about this one more time i think i've spoken about this a few months ago so when it comes to sri lanka there the sri lankan government has come up with an integrated country strategy ics for enhancing india sri lanka relations yeah and uh, it's got a whole bunch of goals goals and objectives and all that you can take a look you can pause the video and and see the see the url and maybe google it and there is this document as well which the sri lankan government came up with it's called the integrated country strategy it's a 27 page document it's for sri lankan diplomatic missions in india it's uh, between 2021 and 2023 so we are right in the middle of this yeah um and this is the sri lankan integrated country strategy so it's uh, so let's take a look at the mission goals and objectives mission goal 1 is to elevate the existing close bilateral relationship to a strategic level through increased interactions at the political level between india and sri lanka and this is a sri lankan initiative it's not an indian initiative by the way so a regular exchange of high level political visits between the two countries cooperation at the parliamentary level uh, greater interactions between sri lanka and the states of the indian union uh, resolve the issue of externally displaced persons and so on mission goal 2 is to bolster foreign investments as well as earnings from exports so increase indian investments in sri lanka and facilitated uh, facilitated ongoing large scale economic development and investment driven projects they want more indian investment into sri lanka rather than rather than chinese investment yes 
increase exports from Sri Lanka and expand Sri Lanka's market share in India, promote tourism between India and Sri Lanka, yes, uh, promote technology innovation, capacity building and so on and so forth for inclusive economic growth and development in Sri Lanka using Indian help. Mission goal three is to expand collaboration in the fields of strategic cooperation, defense, and Indian ocean security. Very interesting development of mechanisms that enhance political level strategic cooperation in defense and security, bilateral joint military exercises, study tours, and high level military exchanges, uh, secure relevant trading berths offered by, offered by India's Ministry of Defense, and o establish and maintain contacts with India's paramilitary and police forces. Secure additional training opportunities for Sri Lankan counterparts. Very good. I like it. Uh, take steps to further strengthen the Office of the Defense Advisor in the High Commission of Sri Lanka in New Delhi. Mission goal four is to enhance cooperation in the fields of culture, education, science and technology to pro promote India's interests. Uh, promote Buddhist ties in, with, with India, Hindu exchanges between the two nations, culture, religious leaders, pilgrims, scholars, all those things, training and educational opportunities for Sri Lankans in India, uh, technological and scientific cooperation, and so on. Then a more positive image of Sri Lanka in India through public diplomacy and so on. Networking between scholars and archaeologists, journalists, writers, filmmakers, so on and so forth. Uh, engage with Indian media and, and influence, influencers, uh, various other things, uh, Gurudev, Rabindranath Tagore, social media. Uh, mission goal number six is to enhance connectivity between Sri Lanka and India, facilitate the increase of air connectivity, sea connectivity, electrical grid connectivity and digital connectivity. And the last goal, mission goal seven, is to promote Sri Lanka's interest in pro protecting its ocean resources in a variety of ways. So what this tells you is that Sri Lanka wants to enhance its connectivity in a multitude of ways with India. This, I would be very happy in the future to see in the future the same kind of relationship between India and Sri Lanka as the, as the kind of relationship India has with Nepal. So we are two separate nations independent of each other and yet very much interconnected. India and Nepal have a privileged relationship. We have an open border. Yes, uh, Nepalese citizens have the right to come and live in India and work in India. They don't need visas. They don't need any of that. They even have the right to serve in the Indian armed forces. I don't. I cannot think of any other two nation, two nations that have this sort of relationship, and Indian citizens also have similar rights and privileges of of uh, doing various things in Nepal as well. So this is a very close and privileged relationship that India and Nepal have. I don't see why India and Sri Lanka cannot also have this sort of relationship, and with the. Um, with, with this news that, uh, that Sri Lanka is now going to use the Indian rupee for international trade. So we are seeing more steps being taken in this, this direction. And it kind of is in line with this document, the, the integrated country st strategy that Sri Lanka has come up vis-a-vis -vis India. Sri Lanka wants to integrate itself uh, more deeply with India. And I think that's a very welcome move. And it's important to note that it is not India that has proposed this. It is Sri Lanka that itself that has taken this initiative. So it's a, it's a good step forward. And uh, yeah, people talk about Akhand Bharat and all that. And people ask whether we should invade and annex other nations. I say we don't need to do any such thing. 
we we should have we should enhance our relationship and our cooperation with with our neighboring nations to the extent that it becomes like the india nepal relationship and we we we, are, we should be perfectly happy with them administering their own affairs and having their own governments what's wrong with that right so we could create an eu kind of situation in the long run of course we cannot have certain nations in that but certainly india nepal sri lanka definitely can be part of that yes we could even bring in myanmar perhaps other nations in the future bhutan certainly yeah in the future we could also have tibet when when tibet is no longer under the chinese boot and and other nations in the future long term future but yes uh, so the india sri lanka relationship seems to be on uh, going in the right direction which is good to see it's very good to see and the indian rupee as we see is doing well we are witnessing the slow gradual rise we are witnessing the slow gradual rise of the indian rupee so this all augurs well for india's economy and 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 the indian rupee and uh, for india's march forward as a as a developing great power yeah mm-hmm. so so that's the first thing i wanted to speak about you know the rise of the rupee now let's talk about iran iran is one of our most uh, one of our significantly uh, important neighboring countries i i consider iran as as a neighbor as a neighboring country now a new development has happened let's put that on the screen so what what is the new development in the india iran relationship this here is the new development uh, in the india iran relationship iran offers india a china style strategic deal and this news has come out uh, just 3 4 days ago yeah so iran has offered india a china style strategic deal what does it mean let's just let's just do a little bit of reading india has offered india a strategic cooperation pact on the lines of a deal it signed with china in 2021 some people said as the sanctions hit country tries to attract investments in its energy and infrastructure sectors details of the iran china deal have remained under wraps what we know is that Beijing will invest close to four hundred billion dollars in in Iran's infrastructure and energy sector under a twenty-five year cooperation agreement. In return, Tehran will provide China with a steady supply of discounted Iranian oil. So this is a major expansion of Beijing's footprint in West Asia and an effort by Iran to court non-Western sources for critical investments. Now they are offering a similar deal to India. to attract indian investments and to develop to and develop its transport and energy infrastructure um ali bagheri kani iran's deputy foreign minister confirmed the offer during an interaction with a group of experts during his visit to new delhi last month now the details of the india proposed pact are not yet clear the matter is under consideration of the ministry of external affairs of india and the mea has not made any statements or responded to any queries yes uh and we know that we have the deal with Chab- the, the chabahar port deal that india is going to develop the port and develop a rail link between this port and uh, the afghan iran border and india has also discovered the farzad b gas field in the persian gulf and india may be in line to develop that as well and and so that's the existing relationship that india has with iran yes so now let's take a look let's try and understand what is the the iran china deal like yeah 
so this is from this is from the iranian uh, president's website president.ir and that's the full text of the joint statement between iran and china you can pause the video or in the future you can look up the you can google this up and read it unfortunately if you read this i read this i think it doesn't give you any any specific details it's a very uh, general kind of statement yeah it doesn't give specifics as to what kind of deal india iran and china have signed if you take a look at the wikipedia article statutory warning wikipedia is not always reliable mostly it's unreliable when it comes to india yeah but let's take a look at what wikipedia says so it's a 25 year cooperation program so once again it it goes into these generalities but it doesn't give you uh, any specific details that we have not seen elsewhere so we know that um, this deal was signed in 2020 this is in in as a continuation of 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 an earlier deal uh, i think it was in 2016 or something that the, the, the iranians and the chinese had signed that um this is a different article which goes a bit into that it has a lot of opinion of course in this um it's a very opinionated and biased article for sure but it gives you some details so iran is going to provide china with large quantities of heavily discounted oil it it uh, sent china, it sold china 18 million barrels in november 2021 alone uh, and instead of hard cash china is bartering for iranian oil with cheap consumer items so china will send cheap consumer items to iran we do not need to take everything this article says seriously because it's kind of opinionated and biased but it gives you a different perspective so chinese auto manufacturers cherry motors and gilia finding it easier to compete with higher quality western made vehicles in iran yes um china has found a market in iran for consumer goods low quality consumer goods vehicles and homeware so because of sanctions european vehicles and parts are no longer easily available in iran and they cost more so china will get a foothold in the iranian market because of that and various other things so that's the kind of thing this article reports uh this is an article in the in a us publication called the national interest that the china iran deal could reshape the middle east so once again it doesn't go into a great amount of detail uh it's more from the us perspective so uh china will invest about 280 billion dollars in petrochemical infrastructure uh the agreement also includes stationing 5000 chinese troops inside iran which is interesting which is interesting yeah uh and uh, so on yeah so that's a whole long article so now how do we interpret how do we interpret what the iranians are offering india they are offering something along the lines of the iran china deal does it mean that they want indian troops in iran i don't think that's that's going to be the case and does it mean that they want india to invest around 400 billion dollars worth of money in into iran over the next 25 years they would hope so of course but is india willing to invest that much does india have that much money lying around to invest in a neighboring country and if india does that what does india gain in exchange for that so we have to look at the history first of all a little bit of history so india and iran india used to buy a lot of oil from iran historically iran has been one of historically one of india's major suppliers of oil then 
the US imposed all kinds of sanctions on Iran and India was made to stop buying oil from Iran. India had to acquiesce to the American demands that India stop buying oil from Iran. Then I think it was in around 2015 or something that the Obama administration signed the nuclear agreement with Iran. The Obama-Biden administration, Biden was the vice president. So uh, this agreement was signed and many of the sanctions were lifted and India was once again allowed by the Americans to start purchasing oil from Iran. And India went ahead and did that. Uh, It was good for India. Uh, But then what happens is that Donald Trump came to power in 2016 and he unilaterally withdrew from the agreement that the American government had signed with Iran, the nuclear deal, and he reimposed the sanctions on Iran. And then he demanded that India should immediately stop buying Iranian oil. And when the president of the US makes such demands in, in a very threatening, forceful manner, India had was left with no option but to acquiesce to what the Americans said. So once again, India stopped buying Iranian oil to India's detriment. Yeah. So then we had to look for oil elsewhere and obviously it was not available at the same price that the Iranians were, were, uh, were willing to sell us at and all that. So India was not allowed by the Americans. Because of US pressure, India had to stop buying Iranian oil. And in, at the same time, the Chinese then stepped in and then they started buying lots of Iranian oil at, at significantly discounted prices because the Iranians were under a lot of pressure. Yes, the Americans were preventing other nations from buying the Iranian oil. So then they had to sell oil to the Chinese at steeply discounted prices. So the Chinese benefited a lot and India lost out because of Donald Trump's pressure tactics. Yeah. Um, so that is the history behind this. We also had the Farzad B uh, gas uh, gas uh, field that India had discovered. I think it was ONGC's Videsh uh, branch that had discovered it and India was supposed to develop it but that that thing also did not work out because of the sanctions and various other things Um, but now but now things things are changing now India is no longer willing to accede to US uh, threats and blackmail as we know India is buying uh, huge quantities of Russian oil discounted Russian oil despite the Americans being extremely unhappy with it with, with India for doing this. But India is going ahead and doing this. Because that's is that's what is in India's national interest. We will prioritize our national interest. We will put our interest first. Now, the Iranians are offering us a deal. We don't know the specifics of the deal, but obviously it will involve oil. It may also involve other petroleum products and natural gas and all those things. So now this is under consideration by the Indian Ministry of External Affairs. And eventually some kind of uh, decision will be made. So maybe it's great for India. Maybe it's good for India. But obviously if India India is already buying oil from Russia and now if it starts buying oil from Iran, the Americans will be genuinely, really furious about that. You know, uh, it's like it's like rubbing a lot of salt on the wounds that already exist. That the kind of, that, that's the kind of thing it is. Now, what does Iran want? Obviously, Iran wants investment. India wants uh, Iran wants Indian investments. Iran also wants to counterbalance China. I assure you about this. Everybody knows that the Chinese are no one's friends. Obviously, in geopolitics, there are no friends. But when it comes to China, you have to be a hundred times more careful, because they typically will will dump you in a debt trap. They will trap you in this in this um, 
never ending nightmare of this debt trap which we have seen with various african nations we have seen that with our own neighbor sri lanka itself yeah and uh, you know so have so doing a deal with the chinese is is like doing a deal with the with the christian devil with the devil of christianity a deal with the devil so iran is acutely aware of this the iranians uh, they like to be like to maintain their independence their autonomy and a deal with china is is dangerous from the front so maybe they are trying to counterbalance that with us with a a corresponding deal with india as well along the same lines which will give them more leverage they will play off the two giant neighbors against each other that sort of thing and there's obviously the russia angle as well so as we know the russians and the iranians are cooperating right now the iranians have these shahed 136 uh, drones these are kamikaze dro- drones loitering drones um so the, they have sold a bunch of these to the russians um the russians used them to great uh, to great effect in the ukraine conflict and the iranians are selling more of these drones to russia so there is this co- strategic cooperation going on between russia and iran and then we have to also remember that there is something called the international north south transport corridor that that connects india with iran with azerbaijan with russia that's a very interesting thing let's take a look at that the international north south transport corridor is a multimodal transportation uh, network established in 2000 for the pr- purpose of promoting transportation cooperation between the member states this corridor connects the indian ocean and the persian gulf to the caspian sea via iran and is then connected to sankt petersburg and north europe via russia um, this is what it looks like yeah on on wikipedia it's a multimodal network of ship and rail and road routes for moving freight with freight between india iran azerbaijan russia central asia and europe let's take a look at the map i hope the map is fine yeah it's fine so we can see that um, it it's showing mumbai as one of the nodes it could also be various other ports in in western india so we have mumbai which is connected via to bandar abbas it could also be chabahar bandar abbas is an iranian port in the persian gulf yeah close to the strait of hormuz that that uh, famous choke point um from bandar abbas you go to tehran you go to bandar anzali bandar amrabad uh, you can you can also go to baku yes it will also connect baku in azerbaijan then uh, which is on the caspian sea coast then astrakhan in the north of the caspian sea which is a part of russia from there to volgograd from there to to moscow from there to st petersburg so you will have a sea route you will have rail routes you will have road routes as well and so and it will also have uh, this orange route through the suez canal through the red sea yes uh, oman will be part of it and so on so this is a multimodal a multinational uh, transport corridor it's uh, about 7500 kilometers long and it's also it's already become operative this year it's already uh, kind of functional not to the fullest extent but it's already functioning it's already possible to to send goods from from india from mumbai for instance all the way to st petersburg through this international north south transport corridor so essentially the the most important nations are india and russia and the connectivity is via iran and azerbaijan so this will help iran 
and Azerbaijan's economy as well. And this is great for Iran because Iran is right now kind of a pariah state. It has all these sanctions that the Americans have imposed on them. Yeah. Uh, so if Iran is able to uh, participate in this, it's it's great for Iran. It's great for the economy. It will give them, you know, a much needed breathing space. It will give, give them, uh, give their economy a boost. They will be able to trade with these nations. And then if they enter into this massive agreement with India, a deal along the lines of the Iran-China deal, it will be even it will be even better for them. So they have a deal with China. They they are engaging in strategic cooperation with Russia. And if they can do the same with India, it's going to be great for them. So then they will feel less pressure from the American sanctions. But then obviously there will be repercussions for, for India from the Americans. The Americans may even contemplate uh, imposing sanctions possibly on India. So that's the, that's the deal. That's what's happening. So the, uh, this north-south transport uh, transport corridor is a very important fledgling new transportation route, but it could become very important as the years go by. Yes. Um, the other thing we have to understand is that Iran wants to definitely uh, have more options. It doesn't want to be completely at China's mercy. It wants to counterbalance China by bringing in India. India is a more reliable partner. India is a partner which doesn't have territorial or hegemonic ambitions or aspirations on Iran. And India is not going to trap in Iran in a dead trap. So that, that's one reason. The other reason, my friends, we have to remember, is that Iran, to some extent, or to more than some extent, fears Pakistan. We always forget Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan obviously for us is not that important a nation, but it is uh, an important nation when it comes to Iran. Iran has a significant border, a long border with Pakistan. Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. And now Pakistan is once again a US vassal state. Yes, I always use this term vassal state. It's one of my favorite terms, I, I think. <laughs> So Pakistan is now a U.S. vassal state. Pakistan, as we know, is a nuclear weapons power. The Iranians have been trying to develop nuclear weapons for the longest time. The Americans have always done their best to prevent them from doing this. Israel also keeps a very close eye on the Iranian nuclear weapons program. So, and now Iran has a hostile neighbor on its uh, on its eastern border, Pakistan. They have always had a certain amount of hostility because of the religious differences. I Iran is mainly a Shia nation. Pakistani, the Pakistanis are, are, are Sunni Muslims. That's one thing. And of course, um, they, there's the American angle as well. So Pakistan has, for the longest time, been a U.S. vassal. For some time, they became a Chinese vassal for close to a decade. Now, once again, they're a U.S. vassal. So that is a threat for Iran. The Americans seek to essentially effect regime change in Iran and throw out the, the regime of the Ayatollahs and the Mullahs, yes? And and, and uh, in case you don't know, recently the great foreign minister of Pakistan, Mr. Bilawal Bhutto, uh, he was in the US recently. He gave an address at the, US, uh, at the United Nations. So foreign minister Bilawal Bhutto Zadari praised the very brave Iranian women during his UN recent UN address. This is an anti-Iran move. Pakistani politicians too have been expressing support for Iranian protesters. 
So the, the, the Iranian women are trying to free themselves from the various restrictions that are imposed on them by the, by the Iranian regime, the government and all that. They seek more freedoms and more uh, all of that. And that's very much in the news these days. Some people would say that it's uh, an American attempt to engineer a regime change in Iran. Some people would say that it's it's an expression of what the Iranian people actually want. The truth could be somewhere in between. Maybe the Iranian people actually want that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. I am um, not an expert in what's happening within Iran by any stretch of the imagination. But yes, these are the possibilities. So the Pakistani government, through their foreign minister, Bilawal Bhutto, has praised the protesters who are protesting against the Iranian government, which is a hostile act against Iran. We are already seeing Pakistan showing its new colors as a U.S. vassal state and anti-Iran colors. And various other Pakistani politicians are also doing this. So Pakistan is a nuclear power. Pakistan is now a vassal state of the US and Pakistan is now openly showing its newfangled anti-Iran policy. Yes, so Iran definitely fears Pakistan. I would say that if Iran and Pakistan were to go to war today, the Pakistanis could possibly prevail. Possibly, possibly. Um, One cannot definitely, uh, one can not discount the Iranians and count them out. But I think it's the nuclear option that will tilt the scales in Pakistan's favor if uh, if things go south for them. Yeah. So that is a big danger for Iran. They have a nuclear armed hostile na- neighbor right at their border and a neighbor who is an, a vassal of their biggest enemy, the US. So that is an issue. That's why that is one of the reasons possibly why the Iranians want India to get involved in Iran. That would give them an extra layer of security and comfort. Yeah. And obviously there is also the Saudi Saudi Arabia angle, Iran and Saudi Arabia have this uh, long-standing antagonistic relationship. Recently, the Chinese got uh, got involved in, in Saudi Arabia. Xi Jinping, who hardly ever travels abroad, just last week or so, he went to Saudi Arabia. He met the various leaders in Saudi Arabia. It, it appears that they have signed like 34 different deals. And... Uh, so that's the that's one angle. So the Chinese are getting involved there. They're getting involved in Iran. Iran fears Saudi Arabia, or at least they, they have this hostility towards Saudi Arabia. So there is this very complicated geopolitical scenario at work here. But clearly the Iranians are looking for investments from India. They want India to counterbalance the other dangerous nations that they are involved in that the Iranians are involved with, especially China and Pakistan. Not that much Saudi Arabia, but China, Pakistan, and the US. So the the Iranians definitely need the Chinese money, but they kind of fear the Chinese. They definitely fear the Americans. They definitely fear the Pakistanis. And they are cooperating with Russia, and they would like to cooperate with India. I think for them, out of all these nations, India may be a much safer bet than the the than the Chinese or the Pakistanis or maybe even the Russians. Because Iran and Russia are not that far away, separated far, you know. If you look at the map, Iran and Russia are essentially separated by just the Caspian Sea. And in the past, the Russians have threatened long ago, in the 20th century, the Russians actually threatened in a variety of ways to turn Iran into a vassal state or even invade and and, and annex Iran. You know, uh, so that's, that uh, threat is always there. The danger is always at the back of their minds. So they even fear Russia. So that is the deal. So 
will this be good for India? If India enters into a deal, well, there are pros and cons. Obviously, we will get cheap oil, we will get cheap uh, petroleum products and all that. That's good for us. That go, that is good for our energy security. We will diversify our uh, our uh, energy uh, sources. That is good for us. Obviously, they will want us to invest in Iran. So we will have to spend money for that. Yeah, but we will get a good steady supply of cheap oil. But then it will also bring in the American ire. The Americans will not like this at all. But we will also get a, a whole host of benefits. So that's for the Indian government to now decide. What are we going to do about this? The Iranians are offering us this deal again. It's again on the table. It's not on, again on the table. It's, it's on the table for the first time. An extensive China-style deal. So the question is, what is India going to do about this? It is, I think, a very tempting offer, but it is also a dangerous offer. Because if India gets involved in this, it could bring in a whole bigger wave of hostility from the Americans, from the West. Yeah. So, yeah, that is what the deal is. So the Indian government needs to ask itself what serves India's national interest the best. Maybe um, <clears throat> maybe a smaller version of the deal, maybe some kind of cooperation some way. So, yeah, so it's going to take time. I don't think the Indian government is going to take take a call, make a decision immediately. Uh, it could, certain things may possibly be kept, kept under wraps and uh, so on and so forth. We, we don't know for sure, but yes, it's a very interesting offer that Iran has offered us. Now, since we spoke about the Iran protests, yes, we spoke about the Iran protests. This is something I tweeted recently. I said that the situation in Iran is not India's problem and it is not India's responsibility. Right now, there are all these protests that are happening in Iran. Uh, primarily uh, protests by women who are protesting against various restrictions and uh, conditions imposed upon them by the regime Iranian government. Yes, uh, they want freedom from all of that. And there are all these protests going on. And obviously there are stories of the of various kinds of brutality that are, that are being unleashed upon, of, upon the citizens of Iran by the Iranian government. All of this is what we see in the Western media. Some, some, some of that may be true, some of that may be exaggerations. We don't know quite what the truth is. Yeah, But definitely there are these protests that are going on. Or lots of footage is coming out and all that. So what I said is that the situation in Iran is not India's problem. It is not India's responsibility. India needs to stay out of this. And as always, when you tweet something, we get all kinds of responses on Twitter. Yes, uh, some are very emotional responses some are disparaging some are angry some are supportive for instance there's this person saying that india iran india should proactively help the secular iranian camp yes um some people are giving a thumbs up uh, this uh, gentleman uh, sridam is saying that i personally think a secular iran will be in the national interest of india secular iranian government will not like china and all then so on so forth so on so forth india should help the iranian people now now, if you see my, my bio data on Twitter, it says I'm neither secular nor socialist. So please don't give it a secular argument. Yes. And when it, so the question now, is, it's actually a good question, good point that uh, Shriram has raised. He believes that uh, a secular Iran will be in the national interest of India. Yes. So that is what uh, this gentleman says. So the question is, will a secular Iran be good for India? Is it so? 
do we remember that iran used to be a secular nation uh there was the iranian revolution the islamic revolution it was in 1979 i believe when ayatollah khomeini came to power uh, the the puppet shah of, of iran mohammed reza pahlavi was deposed he was exiled and then the the, the current government the current uh, dispensation regime came to power in 1979 if my memory serves me right yes so until then iran was ruled by the shah of iran mohammed reza pahlavi he was a puppet of the west during his regime iran was a secular nation yes now let us uh, let us try and see the the actions of iran during its secular time when it was secular so this is an article that has been deleted or something it is uh, iran embassy in pakistan and so on in which they've wrote written, written about uh, pakistan iran relations since the islamic revolution and also before that so let's take a look at uh, something an interesting nugget over here yeah um later on throughout iran along with turkey supported pakistan in more than one way the best example of which was iran's help to pakistan during the september 1965 war with india it was alleged by india that iran supplied oil free of cost to pakistan moreover iran sent pakistan nurses medical supplies and a gift of 5000 tons of petroleum Iran also indicated that it was considering an embargo on oil supplies to India for the duration of the fighting so as long as this 1965 war happened Iran was thinking of imposing oil sanctions on India so that they could support Pakistan and after the suspension of the US military aid to Pakistan Iran was rep- reported to have purchased 90 saber jet fighters from West Germany and to have sent them to Pakistan This is during the time when Iran was a secular nation my dear friends and not only this when Pakistan started losing the war and when the Indian air force became dominant the Pakistanis flew their fighter planes across the border into Iran and parked them on Iranian territory so as to safeguard them from being destroyed by the Indian air force and the Iranians allowed this to happen So even when in Iran was a secular nation Iran was anti India and pro Pakistan Yes Iran was anti India and pro Pakistan when it was a secular nation under the 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 kingship of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi who was a US puppet Iran was then a US vassal state Now the current regime the the islamic regime of the ayatollahs is not a us vassal state and it is not pro pakistan it is very much willing to cooperate with india and collaborate with india in a variety of ways in a way that will prioritize its own national interest that's how it goes but it is definitely not pro pakistan now imagine if there is a regime change in iran yes a regime change in iran and 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 a so called secular government comes to power what kind of geopolitical outlook will it have it will 100% be guaranteed to be pro us yes and then what kind of policies will that new secular iranian government adopt can you can you imagine can you think of think, think about it it's going to be anti india and pro us so please 
disabuse yourselves of this notion these simplistic childish notions that a secular iran will be good for india a secular iran will be a us vasa that's how it is so my position is very clear iran's internal problems are their own problems india should stay out of it yes iran has in the past said make made some statements you know about india's internal matters fine they have done that do we want more of that when you poke your nose into other nations internal affairs you are inviting them to come and poke their nose into your internal affairs do we want the iranians to start uh, interfering in india's internal affairs do we want that we don't want that yeah so you know what uh, keep all these uh, grandiose noble utopian notions of secularism and helping helpless people and all that you know keep it keep it aside this is geopolitics this is about prioritizing your national interest that is simply how it works if if the people of iran desire something they can go and get it for themselves it is not india's problem it is not india's responsibility we don't even know what the true situation in in iran is as always my dear viewers you are all being swayed by the reporting of the indian media which is completely totally 100% parroting the western media and it 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 plays on your emotions and indians as we know are extraordinarily emotional people so we got we get swayed by emotions oh my god they are they are doing this to women women should not you know all all that and and that, that's what we that's what we see over here yeah uh we see very so look, look at this this thing this gentleman called patriot says aise banenge hum superpower means by staying out of iranian affairs this that how we'll become superpower so so how should we become a superpower by going and interfering in all the internal affairs of all the nations is that how you become a superpower no you become a superpower by prioritizing your national interest and not taking up other people's problems as your own that's how you become a superpower all right so uh that is the deal i am very clear about this india should stay out of this and that's what the indian government is doing the in, whether whatever people think doesn't matter the indian government is very clear <laughs> about what india's priorities are and india is staying well clear of what's happening in iran it is their internal matter it is their problem it is their responsibility it is not india's problem it is not their responsibility and i am completely in agreement with the position the indian government has taken of not addressing the issue at all because it is not our issue right so please understand this my friends let's not uh, have this uh, i don't know what to call it indians have this thing that we have to help everybody we have to help the the downtrodden we have to help those who are in need no we have to help ourselves when we are in need is anybody going to come and help us no one's going to come and help us that's not how the world works please uh, be try to be a little less naive about these things yes uh, so that's the deal with iran they are offering india a an interesting an an interesting uh, china style deal and it is up to india to decide what we're going to do with it yeah so it's an interesting conundrum to have it's like in sports you have you can only have 11 players in a in a team but you have 
15 players who are playing really well. So the conundrum is whom to select and whom to keep out. It's a good headache to have. So maybe it is a good headache for India to have, whether we should take this deal or some part of this deal or not. But yeah, it's it's an important decision and, and um, it will have to be dealt with carefully. So that's the deal with Iran. Now let's talk about missiles, shall we? I, we discussed the Agni, the possible Agni 5 test last week. And um, I kind of expressed, uh, what did I say? What did I say last week? I said that we're not quite, I wasn't quite sure which missile it was. The media was reporting it was the Agni 5 that was tested, the Agni 5 missile. The range was kind of similar to the range of an Agni 5 missile. It was. But the DRDO did not say a word about this. The defense minister did not say a word about this. The prime minister did not say a word about this. None of them confirmed or denied which missile it was that was tested. So I said it could possibly be the Agni 5. It could possibly be a different missile with a longer range that has been tested for a, for a curtailed range. It could possibly be a hypersonic glide vehicle, perhaps, and so on. There were many possibilities that are raised. Now, uh, since then, people have written about this. So let's take a look at what, what has been written in the media. So, uh, yeah, mystery test, Agni 5 or hypersonic glide vehicle. So, so clearly, uh, people have uh, now started speculating about this because the government has not clearly made a statement as to which missile was tested. It was clearly a long-range missile. Uh, the range was somewhere between the intermediate range and the, and the intercontinental range. I would say an ICBM, intercontinental range ballistic missile, would have a range of about seven or eight thousand kilometers. Yes, uh, when it comes to when it comes to the ugly Agni five, the stated range is about five or six thousand kilometers. That's what the Indian government says. The Chinese, our Chinese friends, they claim that it has an eight thousand or ten thousand kilometer range. That's what they claim. That's what they they allege. Uh, we should always maintain some kind of ambiguity as per the ranges and we should never ever demonstrate the actual range of the missile. So if you have a missile that has a range of 8,000 kilometers, you should test it for maybe 5,000 kilometers or something, that sort of range. So as to not let your competitors, your enemies know what the actual capabilities are. That's how it is supposed to be. Um, so now people are beginning to uh, speculate as to which, you know, which missile actually was tested. Um, so if you look at uh, the range, as we know, it uh, reaches the uh, southern tip of Madagascar and uh, the eastern, uh, the, sorry, the western coast of Australia. It's a very lengthy, it's a very uh, extensive range, 5,400 kilometers. That was a NOTAM that was issued by the Indian government. And various people took photographs of this from various parts of India and the subcontinent. Uh, people photographed the missile, the, what seems to be a, the, the missile uh, test from Odisha, from West Bengal, from Mizoram, from Manipur, and even from Myanmar. Yeah, it was visible from all these places, um, which is interesting, which is quite interesting. And it, clearly, if you look at this image, it kind of seems, it appears to show a stage separation. Uh, this is more clear, perhaps. You can see uh, a little gap in between, and then the new stage ignites. So it does seem to indicate stage separation and uh, and it seems to be quite low in the atmosphere. So it kind of raises questions as to what this missile actually was. Yeah. And obviously until now, 
the government has not issued any actual statement as to what it was and i don't think the government is ever going to issue an, a statement as to which missile was tested and what parameters were tested and all that so um it could be something else apart from the agni agni 5 is all i can say uh we definitely have the mirv capabilities now i don't know how many am i uh, multiple independently uh reusable vehicles or something like that right? mirv so it's it's one one missile that carries multiple warheads and those warheads can be deployed and made to hit different targets geographically over over a wide geography yeah so it's very hard to 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 protect yourself against such a system a missile that has mr that has multiple warheads so the americans have it the chinese have it the russians have it and uh, i believe the the french and the british may also have it and now we also have the mirv capability it has been tested indirectly multiple times and uh, maybe this time maybe sometime it was tested uh, tested directly as well we are we're not quite sure but clearly we have the technology and if you have a mirv technology we can also have marv technology so those independently reentering reentering uh, warheads could also be maneuvering warheads so they could be targeted to different locations and while reentering the atmosphere and going towards the target they could even maneuver in a variety of ways in order to evade uh being uh, targeted and there is a different technology called the hypersonic glide vehicle which is uh, somewhere between a ballistic missile and a cruise missile and it is hypersonic it glides on the top of the atmosphere it kind of skips along the atmosphere you know it has an unpredictable trajectory so maybe that is something that the indian government tested we not quite sure these are the possibilities that are out there and whatever it is it was a good test it was successful so kudos to drdo and to our rocket engineers and scientists now uh, this is a uh, another news report that came out amid the lse tension india is using naval assets for land border surveillance yeah so uh, one of the assets that is being talked about is the boeing p8 poseidon aircraft p8i aircraft which is typically used for naval surveillance you know uh, surveilling uh, the land domain of the in the indian ocean looking for submarines maybe hunting and killing submarines i'm sure this aircraft can do that yeah but it it can also uh, it's also used for intelligence gathering missions and all that along in, in the naval domain but it can also do that along the along uh, the himalayan borders also so these days it, it appears that the Indi- indian government is is using these naval assets for surveillance along the india tibet border yeah to keep an eye on what the chinese are up to so india has a variety of assets which it can use for sur- for doing surveillance we have satellites uh we have a variety of aircraft including the p8i that we spoke about that we are speaking about here and we also have the uh, uh what do we have the mq9b sea guardian drones so this is once again uh, an american drone and i spoke about this i actually noticed one of these guys yeah near rishikesh that's where it started and then it went all the way down south it actually went it it crossed the maritime boundary it was deployed for some time along the indian ocean over the indian ocean 
and then it eventually made its weight made its way to the to the base where it is deployed where it is where it is hosted stationed yeah so i i actually went ahead and tracked the entire uh, fight uh, flight path of this mq9b sea guardian drone so india is currently deploying these uh, maritime naval assets for land border surveillance the pati maritime patrol aircraft and these drones which is kind of interesting it kind of also indicates that we don't have sufficient uh, assets dedicated assets for the himalayas for the india tibet border and that's something that the indian that the indian government will have to look into currently we are using these other assets for this purpose but it's not the ideal situation so i think india needs to do something about this and, and acquire more drones surveillance drones maybe maybe combat drones and maybe dedicated aircraft for do, for doing this as well the other thing is more missiles the indian armed forces to get the pralay missile 150 to 500 kilometer range will allow targeting of chinese infrastructure in tibet so this is a tactical ballistic missile it is a missile that exits the atmosphere of the earth and then re-enters it at a uh, re-entry velocities so typically the re-entry velocity is uh, about mach 20 plus more than 20 times the speed of sound um so this missile has a range of about 150 to 500 kilometers which essentially brings all of the chinese infra- infrastructure in tibet within its range now i spoke about missiles in the last week's episode i said that i said that we need to draw the right lessons from the conflict in ukraine and one of the lessons we have to draw is that we need large quantities of missiles and not just one kind of missile but a whole spectrum of missiles we need to have cruise missiles supersonic cruise missiles like the brahmos we need to have subsonic cruise missiles we need to have tactical ballistic missiles and and things like that and we need to have a large stockpile of these missiles a two a couple of hundred missiles is woefully inadequate to fight a sustained conflict india should ideally have a stockpile of about 10000 at least of these missiles of various kinds then we will feel secure and safe that we can you know we can participate we can carry out a long campaign sustained campaign against any aggressor uh, you know so uh, so this is good news the pralay missile is a very good missile um we know i'm not sure how many of these uh, missiles are being deployed the missile that is it's compared to is the russian 9k720 iskander missile which is a very similar kind of missile and the chinese dongfeng 12 both of these are short range tactical ballistic missiles so the chinese obviously we know have built a whole network of roads and bridges and military bases and so on and aircraft uh, airports etc air bases in the tibet region and it's all aimed at india so it is essential for india to have these missiles various kinds of missiles we need to have large quantities of the brahmos missile and also these ballistic tactical missiles you know short range missiles so that will help india to counter the chinese threat and uh, we see one more news report about the same thing yeah the same range is mentioned and the only the only question is that how many of these missiles are we acquiring we need large quantities of these 50 of these or 100 of these is not enough we need 
significantly larger numbers of these missiles. We also have the, uh, yeah, this is the Pralai missile once again. Um, so it's got a warhead. The, the warhead weight is up to 700 kilograms. That is a massive warhead. So it can deliver a huge punch. It can it can blow up an entire facility, you know. So uh, that's the kind of missile it is. The maximum speed terminal phase is Mach 1, is it? Okay, whatever. It, that's what it says over here. Uh, so we have the Pralai missile and we also have this missile, the Shaurya missile. And this has been, I believe, been... Uh, inducted for at least a decade and this is a hypersonic surface to surface tactical missile which has a warhead weight of up to a thousand kilos which means it could be a nuclear warhead or yeah i would say one nuclear warhead and the operational range is about between 700 to 2000 kilometers 1900 kilometers so this is a very interesting missile yeah it's a hypersonic tactical missile it's kind of something between a cruise missile and a ballistic missile. Very interesting kind of missile this is, yeah. So this is something that we have. It's I don't know how many of these we have that are already deployed, currently de deployed, but this gives us options. And we also have the nearby missile. I'm not sure if it is completely developed yet. I hear that it is deployed in limited numbers. Is it deployed? Let me see. Deploy. It deployed. Let me see if it is deployed. It is deployed. Limited deployment. It is currently deployed in limited numbers in the line of actual control during the standoff with China. So it looks like we have some of these missiles, some of some a small number of these missiles that have been deployed along the LSA with China. This is a long-range all-weather subsonic cruise missile. So it essentially flies like an aircraft. It flies at the speed of a subsonic aircraft, like your typical, uh, you know, passenger aircraft, that sort of thing. And it it can carry a warhead that is about 300 kilograms, which means it could have a nuclear warhead possibly. And uh, it is a long range missile. We need to finish uh, testing this missile you know, finalizing the, the configuration. And this would be a great missile to have in your in your stockpile. We would need to have large quantities of this missile as well. So this is about the India-China LAC situation, the missiles that we have de deployed, the missiles we are testing, and the other assets that we are deploying along the India-Tibet border. The situation is still tense, and we obviously cannot... Uh, take the Chinese for granted. We cannot trust them in any in any shape or form. They are the number one threat to India. And that's why we have to be forever vigilant as long as Tibet is under Chinese control. Yeah. Now, since we are talking about China, let's talk about something else. China is in the news right now. And it's in the news for all the wrong, wrong reasons. It's in the news because of the crisis that they are facing, the COVID crisis. So let's take a look at what's happening there. So um, there are all these terrible news reports coming out of China. So this is Eric Fiegelding, who is an epidemiologist, uh, 16 years at Harvard and all that. Yeah. So what he says is that the situation is thermonuclear bad in China. Hospitals are completely, this is a report from four days ago. 
Hospitals are completely overwhelmed in China. Ever since the zero COVID policy was dropped, the restrictions were dropped. Uh, there's an estimate that more than 60% of Chinese population will be infected in the next 90 days and 10% of uh, 10% of Earth's population. And he's saying that the, the deaths in China, I don't know deaths where, but deaths could likely be in the millions. Um, the Chinese uh, goal is let whoever needs to be infected, let them be infected and let whoever needs to die, let them die. Early infections, early deaths, early peak, early resumption of production. Terrible, terrible news that we are seeing. Doubling time is not days, it is now possibly hours. That's what some experts are saying. That is terrible. Uh, the deaths in mainland China are hugely underreported. A survey of hospitals and funeral parlors and other things. There's a recent explosion in funeral services caused by this sharp increase in deaths. Cremation in Beijing is non-stop. Morgues are overloaded. Refrigerated containers are needed. 24 by 7 funerals, 2,000 bodies backlogged for cremations. It's like spring 2020 all over again. This time for China. Uh, and so on so forth. It's like all bad news, terrible news. Yeah, that's what's happening in China. That is the report that we are getting. Um, so uh, that is about China. It looks like the situation is terrible in China. And why is it so? China is where the Wuhan coronavirus originated. We know that. And they have had this zero COVID policy for many months now. Very harsh lockdowns in various parts of China. People were, were suffocating under these lockdowns. Terrible situation. It has totally crushed the Chinese economy. The Chinese economy is projected to grow at 2.5%. For the, for, for the foreseeable future. And these are optimistic projections. Yeah. So the situation is incredibly bad in China. It's kind of gone out of control. The COVID has gone out of control. What has caused this? What is the cause? The cause is very simple. The Chinese vaccines are ineffective, which is actually astounding because the Chinese have good scientists. They have a reputation of having good scientists, good, good, uh, doctors and all that. Uh, and yet the, the vaccine they developed has been incredibly ineffective. It's been the worst of all the vaccines that we have seen worldwide. Yeah, which is astounding, really astounding. So they have done a terrible job in, in terms of vaccine production. The vaccine they produ produce is bad. It's, it's, it doesn't work. And they have been vaccinating people and the vaccine doesn't work. So people keep getting infected and it's spread throughout the country. Then they tried this zero COVID policy, locking down every every place where a single person is reported as COVID positive. That's not worked. Now they have given up. They've opened up kind of. And now we are seeing this incredible, incredible upsurge in infections. Now it looks like this is a new sub-variant of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Yeah of the Wuhan coronavirus, a new sub-variant of that. So that's the situation, and it could spread to other countries. That's what we hear. So when I, uh, after I saw this report, this is what I tweeted, that India needs to keep an eye on this, but there is no need to panic. We are fully vaccinated, unless this is a new variant, which is it, which, which it is not. It is a new sub-variant of the Omicron variant. Yeah. Um, so there is no need to panic for India. We are fully vaccinated. And obviously... You will see people saying all kinds of things in response that vaccines, some people say vaccines don't work, which is nonsense. Yeah. The, the thing we have to understand is this. 
the wuhan coronavirus is actually a, reason, a comparatively mild virus it primarily of you know the, the people who die of this virus are primarily those who are immunologically compromised who have pre-existing health conditions conditions like heart disease or diabetes or or cancer or obesity or or people who have various kinds of uh, bad habits smoking alcoholism uh, drug abuse all those things or people who who are obese and all that yeah it's it 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 doesn't necessarily affect older people you if you are 90 years old and you are prop, your your immune system is good and you're very healthy then you stand a very good chance of of surviving being infected by this virus it's about people who have who are immunological immunologically compromised who have pre-existing health conditions so there is no need for indians to panic the indian vaccine the vaccines that we have used in in india are the good ones especially the indian vaccine it is a really good vaccine it's one of the most efficacious effective vaccines yes um, so india has this thing under control i think the entire country is vaccinated now and most people have very good natural immunity as well so india needs to keep an eye on what's happening india needs to prepare for any possible eventuality but there is no need for india to panic and we definitely i i do not foresee any new lockdowns or any such thing it is now time for the indian economy to grow and uh, these things will come and go uh, we need to ensure that we have proper supplies the hospitals are properly adequately ready for a possible uh, upsurge of a little bit of of people who are infected possibly yeah but overall i think the situation is fine for india it is under control and i would say i would exhort everybody to not panic the chinese have messed up it's because their vaccine was so bad it's because the government policies were terrible that's why they are facing the situation right now um one feels sorry for the chinese people yes now uh, i i i there are more such terrible reports coming out yeah this is one by jennifer jang um there are no more beds in, inside the chongqing medical ho- university hospital <coughs> excuse me the elderly are lying on the floor and and so on and so forth it's a, it's a very bad situation it's a humanitarian crisis in in china so this is what i, t- I tweeted after that this is a catastrophe very sad the chinese vaccines clearly don't work india should offer to send vaccines to china as a humanitarian gesture Xi Jinping should swallow his pride and accept the offer for the sake of the Chinese people. So uh you know what we we know that the Chinese are our enemies yes and uh, they they we know what they are doing in the Tibet border and all that but I think as a humanitarian gesture we should be magnanimous enough that even though these guys are our enemies the, the government is our enemy the people are not our enemy I have absolutely nothing against the people of China or for that matter the people of Pakistan yeah um so as a humanitarian gesture we should send them we should offer to send them vaccines and obviously xi jinping should swallow his pride and and accept the offer for the sake of the people he is supposed to rule over as the emperor right so after i tweeted this somebody <laughs> drew my drew my notice to this this is from 2021 june 3 south china morning post which is a chinese publication why modi must swallow his pride and accept chinese coronavirus vaccines yeah 
this is the article it's by an indian person called agni ghosh whoever it is i don't know who it is they typically get indians to write such articles or maybe they put the name of an indian when the, when such an article is published so they were kind of taunting india because we were going through so you know a couple of waves of the virus which we have defeated very well we in india in the indian government has managed the coronavirus pandemic better than anybody else in the world better than the us better than the european nations and certainly better than the chinese yeah but at that time they were they were writing such articles and taunting india and asking the prime minister of india to swallow his pride and accept the chinese coronavirus vaccines the worst vaccine in the world they were touting these vaccines you know and and see the situation today i was not aware of the fact that they had asked uh, written an article like this that prime minister modi should swallow his pride i wrote this without knowing that but yes now the shoe is on, on the other foot it is now proven that the chinese coronavirus vaccine is the worst in the world and the indian vaccine is probably the best in the world so and and there were more articles like this why india should buy chinese vaccines it's by somebody called andy mukherjee whoever it is it may hurt to go to a rival for help but so what saving lives means making an approach to beijing my dear friends the shoe is on, on the other foot it may hurt xi jinping to go to india for help but so what saving lives means making an approach to delhi for xi jinping why china should buy indian vaccines right so this is the situation right now i do not mean to gloat when i wrote this tweet i wasn't aware of the fact that these people had been publishing such articles and the fact that various indian sepoys were shilling for china and asking the indian government to buy chinese vaccines about a year and a half ago and obviously there were lots of indian so called celebrities and influencers celebrities and influencers who were shilling for the pfizer vaccine they were exhorting the indian government to buy the pfizer vaccine which is one of the deadliest vaccines in the world you know it's now all out in the open it causes all kinds of health problems i think it it kills more people people than it saves the pfizer vaccine yeah so the indian government stood firm it did not buy the pfizer it did not allow pfizer to sell its vaccines in india it did not approach the chinese for their defective third rate vaccine and india has had the best coronavirus covid policy in the world or one of the best in the world so i think we should trust the government of india yeah we didn't we do not need to panic nothing's gonna go go wrong and these people these agni ghoshes and and andy mukherjees they need to you know sit in the corner stand in the corner look down in shame and introspect as to what they are doing for the sake of money they were shilling for the worst vaccine in the world and and for for india's enemy it's it's so regrettable to see that our journalists well they they <laughs> uh, that's the kind of behavior and approach they have very unfortunate yes um let's talk about the maldives shall we it's it's a topic i don't think we have breached before on the indian interest podcast so let's talk about the maldives and what's happening in the maldives and why am i talking about the maldives it's because Mal- the maldives are a very important uh, part of our neighborhood and and here's the deal parties in the maldives begin preparations for 2023 presidential election 
and these appear to be some of the candidates yeah some of the prominent candidates for the 2023 maldivian presidential election i believe it's going to be in september 2023 if i am not mistaken and this obviously is an article from august 2022 so yeah it was already the process was already in motion in august this year itself so um so what is the deal so why is why are we talking about the maldives the maldives let's take a look at the map ah oh, we haven't opened the map today <laughs> as we know as i hope you all know the maldives are off the coast of western india southwestern india of the coast coast of of mainly kerala south of lakshadweep west of sri lanka that's where we have this archipelago called the maldives the capital city is male yeah and so on so that's where the maldives are and the british indian ocean territory is actually a part of the maldives but it's currently occupied by the british and the americans that's a whole different story we'll not talk about that today so the maldives are incredibly strategically important for india and it's where you for the past uh, a decade and a half we are witnessing an unfolding india china rivalry for control to some extent of this extremely strategic uh, part of the indian ocean region you know the chinese would like the maldives to become part of their string of pearls strategy the chinese have all these various ports that they are encircling india with yeah which is colloquially called the string of pearls strategy they would like maldives the maldives to become part of that so what's the story what's the back story so i think in in the year 2008 there was a un resolution un security council resolution i don't remember the number it was about combating piracy of the gulf of aden the gulf of aden is this place here you know uh, this is the gulf of aden and there there has been this history of piracy the somali somali pirates who operate in this region Uh, and uh, so there was this un security council resolution for combating piracy and the chinese stepped in that's where so it's in 2008 onwards that they started started making their forays into the indian ocean region with their navy since then their navy has expanded greatly they numerically it's the largest navy in the world now now and they more or less have a permanent presence in the indian ocean region now yeah so they would like to encroach upon india's strategic backyard and they would like to uh, make the maldives one of their pearls in their string of pearls strategy yeah uh, and the chinese obviously want to safeguard the malacca strait they want to ensure that nobody can blockade the malacca strait and they obviously want to revive the belt and road initiative which is right now dead kind of and they want to revive the maritime silk road yeah which is is uh, which links eurasia and africa through uh, a large number of uh, infrastructure and connectivity projects yeah uh, so they would like to revive that they will not give up on these things right now because of the coronavirus pandemic all of that is is totally dead but they would like to revive it and the maldives are 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 a key are a key uh, component of this strategy so if you look at the india maldive relations it's been kind of tumultuous in recent times you go back to the year 1988 you had operation cactus what happened is that a bunch of ltte mercenaries invaded the maldives at that time uh, the president of the maldives the dictator of the maldives was mamoon abdul gayoom yes he requested india for help so india sent the indian navy 
and uh, india was able to liberate the maldives from the clutches of these uh, these mercenaries who had come to uh, take over so that was in i think 1990 1988 i believe 1988 so this guy maumoon abdul qayyum he was in power for almost about 30 years i believe until the year 2008 in 2008 we had the introduction of democracy into the maldives and there were elections in the year 2008 and uh, mohammed nasheed became the president of the maldives in 2008 now this guy mohammed nasheed is, uh, is has a track record of being pro india so there was this incident uh, an international airport contract was awarded to an indian company i think it was in 2010 or 2011 and the entire maldivian opposition which was well which has allegiances other than india and the maldives they opposed this this was all the fruits of democracy coming into the maldives so the opposition was anti india and there were these terrible massive protests in the maldives and mohammed nasheed the nasheed the democratically elected leader of the maldives president of the maldives was made to resign in early 2012 in the winter of 2012 i remember watching the news on a tv screen at an airport somewhere so so that's what happened he was made to resign and the contract that was awarded to an indian company to develop the international airport was cancelled unceremoniously yeah so that's what happened in 2012 then there was a phase where there was a i don't know which government was there but 2013 there were elections and in the 2013 elections a new president came to power abdullah yamin gayum something like that abdullah yamin let's call him abdullah yamin he came to power he was extremely pro china you think mahinda rajapaksa of sri lanka was pro china then abdullah yamin was mahinda rajapaksa pro max yeah so this guy went on this spree of awarding tenders to chinese companies to carry out various kinds of projects in the maldives infrastructure projects and housing development projects and projects and various other things so this guy was extremely pro china from 2013 to 2018 he was in power 2018 there were new elections and this guy was thrown out abdullah yamin lost the elections and a new guy came to power ibrahim mohammed solih who belongs to the party of mohammed nasheed who is uh, who was ejected in 2012 who is pro india so ibrahim mohammed sali is also pro india he has this what you could call a pro india policy and he kind of uh, reversed many of the policy decisions made by abdullah yamin um and once again the opposition came to prominence they've started this new campaign called an the india out campaign and the opposition is led by this this uh, uh, this yamin guy you know abdullah yamin so uh, the the opposition is pro china the opposition is leading this india out campaign in 2021 in november there was this yoga day celebration which was uh, led by the indian embassy in male and this celebration was disrupted by the uh, by uh, an opposition mob carrying these banners india out and all that yeah so the opposition is very strongly pro china and anti india this year uh, the 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 president ibrahim soli has banned the india out movement and now in 2023 there's going to be a new election so it's going to be an election between two forces two camps a pro india camp which is mohammed uh, which is ibrahim 
Mohammed Solih and an anti-India pro-China camp, which is the Abdullah Yameen camp. Yeah. So depending on who wins, you're going to have a, a change possibly in the policy and in the geopolitics of the region. If Ibrahim Soli wins, then the pro-India policies will continue and it will get these policies will get strengthened. If Abdullah Yameen wins, then once again Maldives will flip in orientation and become pro-China. Maybe they will they will enter into a free trade agreement with the Chinese, like they were trying to do the last time Abdullah Yameen was in power. And maybe Maldives will go into a deep Chinese debt trap, and there will be big problems for Maldives and also for India. So that is what the 2023 election in the Maldives is about. So this guy, Nasheed, is the guy who was thrown out of power in 2012. And you can see that he is very much anti-China and pro-India. He says, we shouldn't paint India and China with the same brush. India helps Maldives develop, develop independently. But China attempts to use debt as a disciplining agent. So you can see that he is very much pro-India, pro but it appears that he is not going to be able to stand for election because of various some some kind of technicality. So it's going to be uh, Ibrahim Mohammed Soli of his own party, of Mohammed Nasheed's party, who will be the presidential candidate most likely in the 2023 election. So it's essentially India versus China in that election, which is coming up, I believe, in September next year. It is important for India. If India wants to safeguard its uh, its its uh, maritime security in the Indian Ocean region, it needs to have the Maldives on its side, and it is good for the Maldives if it is on India's India's side rather than China's side because we know what the Chinese do to small nations; they destroy the small nations and and essentially enslave them. So I I hope that the people of Maldives realize who their real friends are. In this case. See, typically in geopolitics, there are no friends, no enemies. It's all temporary alliances. But when it comes to the Indian subcontinent, I believe that we actually have, have stronger relations and relations that can be considered to be friendly relations like we have with Nepal. I mean, India genuinely is Nepal's friend. And India is the friend of all, all the other nations in the Indian subcontinent, apart from a nation like Pakistan, you know, which is a perennial troublemaker. So I hope that the people of the Maldives vote for Ibrahim Mohammed Soli and vote for the pro-India dispensation and not for the pro-China dispensation, which is not going to be good in the long term for the Maldives. So that is the situation in the Maldives. It's an upcoming election next year, and it's going to be a very important election for the entire subcontinent. Now, before we end, let's talk about the situation in Ukraine, because that's that's something we have been doing ever since uh, we restarted the Indian Interest podcast. So what's what's happening? What's happening in the Ukraine conflict? Not much right now. The Rasputitsa season is ending. You know, the mud season. Now the real deep freeze will come in. The real winter comes in. I think yesterday was the longest night of the year, which means that today is the day from, from which winter actually has set in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, yesterday I believe was the winter solstice. 22nd of December, most likely, if my memory serves me right. Um, yeah. So, Belarus now is in the is is in the midst of things. So if you look at the map, here's the map, where's the map? Ukraine is here. North of Ukraine, you have Belarus. Yeah. So Belarus is now, uh, Belarus is pro-Russia. 
and now Belarus is, is, is getting involved in this conflict. So Belarus says that its Russian S-400 missile system and Iskandar missiles have entered combat duty. Very interesting. The S-400 missile system, missile defense system is the most advanced uh, system that is under, currently deployed. I believe the Russians have, have developed an S-500 system as well. I am not quite sure if it's already been deployed anywhere, but the S-400 is the best in, in, its, in its class in the entire world. So the Belarus have acquired the Belarus has acquired the system and they have already deployed it. And they have also deployed Iskander missiles, which are similar to the uh, to the Pralai missile that India has, you know. So that's been received from Russia, and these systems have already been put on combat duty. Um, what else is happening? Yeah, same thing. Uh, Belarus has deployed S-400 and Iskander missiles on its territory. So it's obviously not going to be deployed against Russia. It's going to be deployed in the direction of Ukraine. What else is happening? This is happening. 80% of the Kiev region is without power amid rolling emergency blackouts. The Russians have been targeting the Ukrainian electricity grid. They have been systematically, step-by-step, degrading the Ukrainian electricity grid and network through missile strikes, cruise missile strikes. And now, this is from December 21, that's two two or three days ago, 80% of the Kiev region is now without power. And there are rolling emergency blackouts across the nation, It's, it's essentially. Um, so the temperature is minus 5 degrees in Kiev, heating still on at, at water, power out for 24 hours and so on. Most of the time, no internet, very little news and so on. So yes, that is the situation in Kiev and I would say the situation in other parts of Ukraine may possibly be worse. What else is happening? See, vanguard of a Russian tank army, shock corps, have started arriving in Belarus. So lots and lots of Russian tanks are rolling into Belarus. And and this uh, account says that Russia is expected to launch a huge offensive against Ukraine in the first quarter of 2023. Uh, This is another report. A massive railway echelon with new T-90M and T-72B3 battle tanks of the 22 model was spotted on the territory of the Republic of Belarus. So as we can see, lots and lots of Russian heavy equipment, armor, tanks, etc. is rolling into Ukraine. It's being developed. It's been deployed on Ukrainian territory. Ukraine, sorry, on on Belarusian territory. Belarus, as we can see, is north of Ukraine. Uh, the the border between the between Belarus and Ukraine is very marshy. Lots of small rivers, rivulets, and streams. Um, so it could be a diversion, or it could it could be a prelude to an actual invasion. We don't know. Um, when the February 24 military operation began in tw- in, in this year 22, the Russians did not make any attempt to hide what they were up to. The invasion everyone knew was imminent. All the deployments were very clearly visible on satellite images, you know, deployments along the Ukrainian border. And they invaded when when everyone knew they were about to invade. So similarly, whenever the new winter offensive happens, it may happen in plain sight. The Russians may not make any attempt to, to hide it. The only thing is... 
we don't quite know what direction it will come from whether it will be a single line of attack whether there will be multiple directions in which the attack comes from whether the belarus frontier will become an active frontier we don't quite know yet but i think the entire world kind of anticipates that a major russian winter offensive is imminent uh, we are almost at the end of december so it could perhaps happen in december itself end of december itself or maybe in january but most likely if it happens it will definitely be in the winter first quarter of 23 by the by the time february rolls around by the time february ends there's a new rasputin season that comes in the new mud season especially late february and march and april that's when the ground becomes muddy again so that's not a good time for a military operation so most likely if a military operation happens a winter offensive it's going to be either in the end of december or somewhere in january if it does happen and all indications seem to be that there could be a major russian winter offensive in ukraine so yeah that's about it for today's episode of the indian interest that's where we are lots of important things happening worldwide and, and all of this affects india the iran proposal for a, a china style deal um the maldives elections the war in ukraine uh the covid situation all of this affects us either in the short term or in the long term that's why we need to always uh be vigilant and keep an eye on what's happening and that's what we'll keep doing on the indian interest podcast so that's uh, that's uh, that brings me to the end of today's episode thank you for watching and i will see you very soon i will see you in less than 24 hours on the next episode of the ask abhijit show until then take care thank you for watching i'll see you very soon bye good night good day bye